Hey, welcome back to Tony Katz today. I'm Stacy Washington. I'm filling in for Tony. And you can find out more about me at StacyOnTheRight.com. I love when the president has a rally. I love that. Um, but what I love even more, and this is only a temporary condition, so I'm going to have to relish it while I can. What I love more is the craziness, the cray pants. Um, it's just something I've never really experienced before. Uh, Marianne Williamson. Now, first off, you may not realize that she's an occultist because in her books, I have one on Audible and I want that same one in paper copy. And it's a book about weight loss. So I'm just going to, you know, come clean here. That's why I bought the book because I want to learn about weight loss. So she, in the book, talks about this. Um, so she says your higher power and she refers to God. So she uses the two interchangeably. And so it's not, it's like if you're a Christian and you're listening to it, it, it doesn't set off any alarm bells or anything. But this kind of news did. It was a group of supporters of Marianne Williamson. They've put together an occult task force in support of the spiritual guru. Now, her campaign isn't actually happy about it. The Washington Post um, was talking to this person who remains anonymous. She's heading up the task force. She told them that 13 witches, chaos magicians, and energy workers performed gestures in an effort to get Williamson more speaking time during Tuesday's Democratic presidential primary debate. Now, the other thing I'm noticing about this as an aside, totally a tangent, is that the Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, is going after Williamson kind of in the same way that they attacked then-candidate Donald Trump, which means they'll probably get a Pulitzer and she might end up winning the nomination. And as scary as that is, because there's no way she beats Donald Trump. She says she will beat him with love. President Trump isn't going to deal in her emotional rhetoric if they go up against each other. It would be the same thing it would be with, uh, with, with Michelle Obama. That's the thing you can actually count on with President Trump. He's going to be the same. So the Twitter feed is the same. His demeanor towards people who attack him is the same. You hit him, he's going to obliterate you. There is no hitting back. There's a total destruction coming your way. And if he's running against you in an elected contest, he's going to treat you as his full opponent and he's going to attempt to win. Not to somewhat damage you, Mitt Romney, or be your friendly enemy, you know, um, that other one, McCain. He's going to go after you so that he can crush you and leave nothing but bits and dusty parts of you in his wake. That's what he's going to do to Marianne Williamson if she's the nominee. But I don't think she's going to be the nominee. I actually think she's a bit of a, uh, she's a kind of a fun, she adds a little bit of sparkle to the events. Um, she adds what reporters call local color. <laughs> so so we can, we can count on her continuing to be there 10 more debates means they're not going to start culling these people for like three or four more debates which i honestly i don't understand the process here it is possible that they don't understand how beneficial it is to the republicans that they have 10 debates because 10 debates that's 10 additional showcases of the lunacy of the policies that americans don't want that they're pushing forward so we'll see how that works out um so i kind of segued into and I, i'm going to have to re-segue into it um, we were talking a little bit about the president's reaction to being a called a racist and his response that criminal justice reform is something he was able to accomplish and not President Obama. And I was moving into kind of a just a brief touch on this whole discussion about reparations. Now, Antoine Tucker is running for New York 14 Congressional District, which happens to be run right now at present by AOC. And he's one of a handful of candidates uh, 
Cherie Murray, I interviewed her on my show about a year and a half ago. And so she's running also. There are some other candidates in the in the mix. I think there's four or five of them. Um, I think you can go to campaigncorner.net and find out more about that. I'll, I'll make sure about that website here on the next break and I'll uh, firm it up for you. But it, he has an interesting take on the reparations. He says the DNC should pay the reparations because they started the KKK. They they were for segregation. They were against integration before they were for it. They were the party of slavery um, and, and so on and so forth. He gives this big rundown about it in this video that he posted online. And I love his take on it because reparations, if they're ever paid out, which we know they won't, because when Democrats were in charge of all three parts of government, did you hear any one of them, even the lesser known Democrats, did you hear any one of them talking about reparations? No. Did you hear anybody at CNN or MSNBC talking about reparations when Democrats controlled all three parts of government? There's a few things they didn't do. They got health care done. They rammed through Obamacare, but they did not address illegal aliens, the dreamers, uh, any of those people. They did not address reparations. That's how you know it's not a serious conversation. When a party holds all three parts of the government and they don't get something done, it's either sabotage on the part of some of their membership or it's because it's not a priority for them. And so reparations are not a priority for the Democrats. They are simply a tool to agitate and motivate minority voters, specifically blacks, to get them to the polls. They understand how historic the election of President Obama was, but it also presented them with a unique problem. They had record high black voter turnout. And then now what? It's fizzling out. And Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I said it. When's the last time you heard anything about Black Lives Matter? Yeah, the reason you're not hearing about it is because the leadership of Black Lives Matter and most of the people who were a part of it, they're very dissatisfied with the results they've gotten from the Democrats. And I think the disillusionment has resulted in a lot of them for the first time in their lives realizing Democrats don't give a care about them unless they're in the voter booth. Outside the voter booth, they don't know black people. Democrats don't actually know or spend time with black people. I mean, just ask them. The ones that do, they have such a martyr attitude. You know what is one thing I absolutely would never be able to stand? Is if I was friends with someone and the attitude of that friend every time they're around other people is like, yeah, I'm friends with Stacy. As if, you know, it's some kind of like, you. I can't, I, I put up with the absolute you know, it's a dastardly hard job that I have to do, but I'm her friend. I put up with the slings and arrows. I'm friends with her. Would you even spend any time around somebody who acted like that? Friendship is a privilege. So if you want to act as if you're a friend or an ally to black people, how about being friends and allies with black people on the same level that you're friends and allies with everybody else? You share things in common, you're friends. You don't share things in common, you're acquaintances or you don't know each other at all. But to actually act as if you're a martyr because you are a part of the black community or you're an ally of black people, you can keep that. I don't want any parts of that. So, And I don't know why anybody else would. Why would anybody want to be friends with someone who felt they were a victim and their friendship was some kind of a, you know, just magnanimous gift that I should be so grateful to receive? Keep your crappy friendship. I don't need friends like that. I have the best friends. I have the best people. So, you know, that leads to whether or not we actually would be the source of the reparations. So taxpayers are the source of government funds. So any reparations that are paid from the U.S. government would come from taxpayers. So if you're asking me, 
do I wish to pay myself reparations by funneling my money through the government so they can take a whole lot of it and just squeeze a few pennies back out to me? No, I don't want to do that. And anybody who has two, just two, just two teensy-weensy, slow-firing, misfiring, like some tiny brain synapses. If you just got two working, you know that reparations that come from the government are actually coming from you, so you're paying yourself. So why not keep your own money and just invest it, or at minimum, put it in a savings account, or buy some cowgirl boots with it? Why, why send it to the government to send to other people who haven't worked for it? Because you're not going to get any back. That, that's, that's the rub. Reparations, no matter what amount they designate, it will ultimately be on the same progressive taxation system that we're all suffering under now, which means the more money you make, the more the federal government punishes you for your success. And that's also a load of garbage that I don't want any parts of, but I'm forced to participate in. So if, if, you, if you have any sense at all, you know that this would be the enshrining of a division that we've already overcome. We've already had reparations. The black community in America has already had reparations. And I've discussed that at length in other programs. I, I will just surmise it to say, in, in the big scheme of things, if you think about how can we bring people together? Because I, I hear the Democrats talking a lot about how they want to take um, uh, you know, the office of the presidency and they want that person who's the president to heal the racial divide. Well, we had the first black president and we came out of that more racially tense and div- divided than we were before he was the president. So it's not a black guy who can do it. So now they're saying one of their other team members can do it. Maybe Kamala Harris, who's not even black or uh, any one of the others. Pete Buttigieg, who's, you know, he's the first gay guy. You know, he's going to heal us. No, he's not. Um, any of them. Bernie Sanders, who his only two voice levels are yelling and screaming. He's going to heal the country. I don't think so. He said he would go to the Middle East and meet with the leaders there and bring peace to the Middle East. What is he like? somebody from the biblical era like how is he going to bring peace to an area that's been at war for the entirety of the existence of humanity uh so i don't think i don't i just think that the conversation is being framed around the wrong things what i find to be the most unifying is when people choose to be with each other surrounding causes ideas activities you know sometimes it's the the friends that you have if you look around some of them are there because they have the same kids that you have some of the friends that you have it's you're friends with them because you were in a class together in college and it was the worst class you ever took and you had the worst instructor ever and you survived it along with that friend you know a bunch of people dropped out but the ones who stuck the class all the way through they're friends forever you've been through the fire together in in some way shape or form or maybe it's someone that you met in a club, you know, book club, discussion club, you name it. You're, you hike together, you work out at the gym together, and you're always on the treadmill next to each other, whatever. These are choices that we make, which means the relationship is by our own choice and it can grow and flourish under those conditions. Reparations will divide us because then we'll have to kind of, it's the same thing that happened after Barack Obama was president. While he was president, people started looking at each other and wondering, do you think I'm a racist? Black people you know, are you a racist or do you think I'm one of those people who thinks you're a racist? And so we're always questioning each other instead of just taking each other at face value and using our normal senses to ascertain whether or not the person is worthy of further relationship, you know? So reparations destroys the bonds that keep us together and we are more alike than we are different and we're all Americans. So what could be more important than maintaining the familial bonds 
of our society as Americans and promoting that, which would be the ultimate way of smashing what the Russians tried to do in the last election. It wasn't the Russians and Donald Trump. It was the Russians wanting to take an opportunity. It was like a you know, flashing sign. Hey, here's your chance to get in here into America and really sow the seeds of division using Facebook and whatever else, which, by the way, 70 grand on Facebook ads, they didn't do much. But what they were able to do is to make Americans suspect that some Americans were Russian bots and some Americans wanted to do things for the Russians. So in that way, they were successful. But in the most material aspect, which is changing votes, they were not successful. So the big deal now is to, like, uh, the the producer for the show, Ari, he's a millennial. So he's young. Woo, woo! He's fresh. He's he's unspoiled. And for people like him, he has his head screwed on straight, so we don't have to have coffee and try to convince him or have an intervention with him. But for other millennials that maybe don't have quite as much knowledge as Ari, they're going to be wondering, is the president a racist? And I'm here to tell you, even if he was, hear me, I'm black in America every day. It's not something I can change. I'm not going the Michael Jackson route. This is who I am. I'm less concerned with his personal feelings about black people than I am the policies he's willing to sign into law and the direction he's willing to drive this country in. If he drives our country towards economic freedom and success, peace inside our borders and strength abroad, and an overall feeling that America is what it is, he doesn't have to change what it is. We all will know it's the best. Then I'm willing to sign on to that for four more years, as opposed to someone who simply wants me to stop what I'm doing, stop working, stop earning, stop caring, stop doing, and stare at my skin and feel victimized by how God made me. That's an obvious no. I want the person who is unconcerned with really what amounts to a teeny sliver of who I am. The permanent tan doesn't actually dictate what I do every day or how I think or where I go or who I'm married to or how I raise our children. All it does is it's it's just it's just another part of me. It's just an aspect of who I am. And I, too, can get lighter in the wintertime and darker in the summertime. The more time I spend outside in the sun, especially if we go to the beach, I can get a pretty good tan, a deeper tan than I'm already sporting. But it doesn't change what I do. I never get up in the morning and say, hey, what am I going to do about, you know, such and so because I'm black? I mean, who does that? Who gets up and says, I'm a woman today. What will I do? Nobody. That's why voting for them just doesn't make any sense. All right. We're going to go to break now. When we get back, we're going to have more. Uh, So stay right there. Hey, welcome back to Tony Katz today. Um, are white robots better than black robots? We'll talk about that next hour. We're also going to be talking about Gillette getting woke and broke. Um, they're losing cash like nobody's business. And it's uh, interesting the effect their advertising has had on their business. And right now, I want to talk about Tulsi Gabbard. So at the debate, she landed some amazing punches on Kamala Harris. She was ice cold in her delivery and she made those attacks. It, it, it was just so effective. And I don't think Kamala Harris saw it coming. She was expecting to be attacked as one of the front runners, but not like that. So in response to Tulsi Gabbard really landing some great blows on her, she has responded by saying, well, um, you know, 
reporters writing their stories with eyes on the modern day assignment desk of Twitter read this. The Russian propaganda machine that tried to influence the 2016 election is now promoting the presidential aspirations of a controversial Hawaii Democrat. That, well, actually was her campaign manager um, or in press secretary, Ian Sams, tweeting out, blaming Tulsi Gabbard's attacks on Kamala Harris on the Russians. Honestly, you you just can't make this stuff up. Um, you, you, you just can't. You can dream it up. You can make it up. There's no way you're going out and you're saying, hey, um, what what kind of reaction would any candidate have against another candidate really getting them good at the debate? Uh, Russia. <laughs> so so, um, you know, that that kind of points to all of that vaunted excitement about Kamala Harris kind of fizzling out. Don't you think like it, it means that. When people are looking at her, they're not seeing someone that they can support based on policies or ideas. And she doesn't have that mystique that Barack Obama was able to harness and create all of those images. I remember the images from the Obama campaign. Um, People in my family who are Democrats would send them to me. Sometimes it'd be an email with 140 pictures embedded in the email. Um, Barack Obama walking under an American flag in a, you know, arched uh, like colonnade. Barack Obama and Michelle Obama smiling out with the two daughters, you know, American flag behind them. Um, crowds of people swooning over the Obamas. I would scroll through and watch, look at like the first three or four. And then I'd realize, oh, this is they're trying to get me to get on the right side of history, quote unquote. And then I would just close the email, not because I hate them or because I have animosity, but it just doesn't make any sense to me that we're spending so much time worshiping him at the time, you know, he was running as opposed to looking at what he would do for the country. So, yeah, Kamala Harris can't inspire that. It's pretty sad, as President Trump would say. All right, <laughs> we'll be back with more. Um, I'm Stacey Washington, filling in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Hey there, welcome back to our last hour of Tony Katz today with me filling in Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right. StacyOnTheRight.com is where you can find out more. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. It's Dr. Michael Buzzler. He's a PhD. Uh, he's a public policy analyst, economics expert, and professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey. He's also a featured columnist at Newsmax, The Hill, The Western Journal, and Townhall.com. Hey, Dr. Buzzler, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So this has been a pretty interesting week as far as the Fed is concerned. Uh, The Federal Reserve actually announced that they were cutting their key interest rate Wednesday for the first time in a decade to counter the impact of Donald Trump's trade wars, the low inflation and global weakness. What does that mean for regular everyday Americans? Well, um, it's good news for uh, anybody borrowing money, anybody saving money, uh, not the best news. It's, it is something I believe the Fed did take the um, correct action. Recall when President Trump got into office, uh, his first goal was to increase economic growth. And the reason was that 
um, the prior administration, um, their policies were not geared to economic growth. And as a result, we had a, a very slow growth, really, for the decade prior to Trump getting into office. So Trump did what he could to get uh, economic growth. He reduced regulations, reduced taxes for everybody, and the economy started to grow. However, the Federal Reserve uh, started raising interest rates very aggressively from the time President Trump was elected until the end of 2018, a two-year period. They raised interest rates eight times. Now, granted, they were very low, uh, but bringing interest rates up that fast ended up uh, really slowing economic activity. So I think the Federal Reserve took the right action. They realized they were much too aggressive with raising interest rates, and they brought it down a quarter of a, a point. They said they're not going to bring it down anymore the rest of the year. That may or may not happen. Now, your question was, what does that do for the average person? Well, um, because the Fed raised interest rates so much in the last, uh, in, six, in 2017 and 2018, uh, home sale, mortgage rates went up and home sales started to decline. New home construction started to decline. Mortgages were m more expensive. Uh, so last year at this time, the average mortgage rate on a 30-year mortgage was about four and three-quarter percent. Now the Federal Reserve uh, took their action. Interest rates have come down anyway because demand has gone down. And now you can probably get a 30-year mortgage at probably in the three and three-quarter percent range. What that will do will spur demand in the housing market that will tend to increase new construction, uh, and that'll help the um, economy grow. So anybody buying a house will see lower mortgage rates. Anybody buying a car will see lower uh, interest rates on car loans. Businesses will see their uh, lending rates go down uh, somewhat, too. And from that standpoint, it's going to have a very positive effect on the economy. So, Dr. Buzzer, that's a fantastic rundown, and I thank you for the historical perspective because a lot of us have kind of forgotten that there was kind of, well, obviously there was an economic downturn and a sustained kind of inability to pull out of the recession during the Obama years, but for the first two years of President Trump's presidency, if you haven't bought a house or bought a car, you might not have noticed that the rates had increased. So what does this mean for families that might be looking at their home and thinking, actually, I want to refinance down into a lower rate or maybe pull some cash out to do some home improvements or, or, you know, accomplish some goal, um, removing some equity from their home? Yeah, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Depending on uh, the question of refinancing, it uh, depends on what their current rate is now. Usually the rate has to drop, uh, has to be about one full percentage point less than what you're paying um, for refinancing to make sense. And the reason is there's some costs when you refinance. Uh, some settlement costs with the uh, settling on a new mortgage. So if you can save about a full percent, so if you have a four and three quarters and the rate goes down to three and three quarters as it's going to now, you may consider refinancing. Um, uh, if you have plenty of equity in, in your home um, and you want to pull some of that out for a number of reasons, paying bills, expansion, et cetera, whatever you want to do, uh, those rates will be lower, uh, uh, lower also. So it'll make it a little easier for you um, to do. The other thing is there should be more loan money available. And the reason for that is um, when the Federal Reserve starting, started pushing up interest rates, they reversed what they called their quantitative easing. And the quantitative easing done back in 2009, 2010, was they simply expanded the money supply to try to get 
um, uh, the economy going again. Well, during Trump administration, they did the reverse of that. They started shrinking up the money supply, which again tends to slow economic growth. They've said they're going to slow down or perhaps postpone some of that for a while, too. So I expect to see some positive um, signs in the economy in terms of economic growth picking up and in terms of anybody needing to get any kind of financing for whatever reason, those rates are going to be lower. So a, a couple more questions for you. The first first yeah. one, just really quickly, why, why Dr. Bilsard, were they so adamant about raising rates as soon as he became the president? Is it really political or was there something else they were trying to stave off? Well, I, I certainly hope it wasn't political. The Federal Reserve is supposed to operate free of politics. They're a semi-independent uh, branch of government, essentially. Uh, so I hope it wasn't political. I believe the reason was... Um, Interest rates were, uh, from the Fed's perspective, interest rates were near near zero. And they were afraid uh, if they kept the rate that low and the economy slowed down, they wouldn't be able to cut rates anymore because they're already down to, to zero. So I believe the thinking was, let's get the interest rate back to a more historical level, which it, it's very close to now, uh, and let's try to do that as quickly as possible. I don't think their thinking was wrong to bring the interest rates up. It's just... They moved much too aggressively uh, to do that. And at a time when we really need economic growth, um, they're hurting it. Recall, we haven't had 3% prior to President Trump coming in. We didn't have 3% annual growth since the year 2005. Mm -hmm. We haven't had 4% economic growth since the year 2000. So, And that's caused all kinds of uh, problems with people dropping out of the workforce because there's no jobs available. Uh, college graduates taking jobs for which they're overqualified, again, because there's not enough opportunity. Mm. So it caused all, all kinds of uh, problems. And now we're concentrating on uh, getting the economic uh, growth. Um, and I think that's going to be very beneficial uh, into the future. Okay, so that, that's that's a great um, kind of look back. Cause I'm, I've, I was kind of wondering about that because I, I thought the Fed is not political. So it's not, but it, it just looks like... It, it, it just it probably looks a little worse than it really is. So hopefully, hopefully. Um, so it, when we talk about yesterday, I was just noticing um, that the Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled to finish down 333 points. That was a drop of 1.2%. And that was based on the announcement that the president was going to apply 10% tariffs to $300 billion mm-hmm. in Chinese goods. Where, where, where do you see that going? Well, look, I'm I'm a free market economist. I favor free trade and I favor no tariffs on on anything. I think President Trump has the same goal. The problem is when President Trump got into office, he took a look at every one of our trade agreements and every single one of them, for whatever reason, everyone was slanted in favor of our trading partners and to the detriment of the U.S., for instance, in the automobile industry. Um, they make a car in Europe, uh, sell it in the U.S., we charge a 2.5% tariff. We make a car in the U.S., sell it in Europe, they charge a 10% tariff. In China, they charge a 25% tariff. So they're not buying many of our cars, because the tariff makes the price too high. We're buying plenty of their cars. Money is flowing out of the country. Mm-hmm. So President Trump said to every one of our trading partners, listen, um, let's get together. I want to renegotiate every one of these trade deals. Well, the partner said, we're not in any hurry to renegotiate. This, this is working well for us. 
So President Trump, again, he's not a politician. He's a business person. A business person, when you have a reluctant trading partner, you create a sense of urgency. So what did President Trump do? He said, if you don't come to the table, I'm putting a tariff on everything you sell to us. Well, already Mexico and Canada have signed new agreements. South Korea has signed a new uh, agreement. Japan and India are negotiating for a new agreement. And for the first time since Richard Nixon normalized relations with China, China's at the bargaining table. Now, with the latest announcement, President Trump said last May, I want to, last spring, I want a deal by May 1st. And we were pretty close to having a deal. And then at the last minute, uh, China decided to, to change their position. So Trump said, okay, I'll, I'll work with you. I'll give you another 90 days. But by September 1st, I want a new agreement. Well, China, again, is not in any hurry to do this. So President Trump said, look, if I don't have an agreement by September 1st, I'm putting another 10 percent tariff on the rest of the goods. Um, So I think these tariffs, while uh, they will cause some short term pain, um, especially because China will retaliate and put tariffs on our agricultural products, which will hurt the farmers. um, I think it will. It does have some short term pain. But in the long run, I think we'll come up with free trade agreements that are fair and benefit the American agricultural industry uh, and manufacturing industries. It's very difficult for us to sell our goods in these foreign markets because of these large tariffs. So in the long run, these tariffs, I think, will be gone and um, foreign markets will be open to U.S. manufacturers. And that's going to be a plus in the long run. Mm, so I, I so appreciate you uh, as a person who's obviously free market. You're an economist. You've been doing this for 35 years or more. Um, but to take the perspective that the president, honestly, I, I don't think he likes tariffs. I think he's only using them as a tool to motivate our trading partners to be more fair with us. Um, and and I, I would hope that every president would use whatever tools were at their disposal to do that. Uh, Michael. Buzzler. You're a public policy analyst, and I want to give everybody your websites, muckrack.com slash michael-buzzler, and Facebook. Uh, you're also michael.buzzler on Facebook, and at mbuzzler on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend. And we're going to break right here and be back with more Tony Katz today with Stacy on the right in just a couple of minutes. We are back, and I've just had such a great time chatting with you on a Friday afternoon, morning afternoon, um, about everything going on across the country. And that leads us to, I just thought this was so interesting. Um, so Senator Lindsey Graham went on one of the shows, and he was talking about the Department of Justice not prosecuting Comey for mishandling the memos. Now, full disclosure here, I'm an Air Force veteran, and I distinctly remember being young and having my BDUs press to the consistency of cardboard and my boots shined up to a glossy finish and sitting in a training session on handling classified documents. Now, I only held a secret security clearance. So that meant, you know, I could see secret things. Um, Top secret, I couldn't see them. But if I mishandled anything that was classified as secret or facilitated the mishandling of anything that was above my security clearance, there were stiff, severe penalties which our trainer stressed could include imprisonment at Fort Leavenworth. Mm. 
because and and dishonorable discharge which is worse than going to prison it's like being in prison for the rest of your life because you can't get a job and so i i just remember walking out of there thinking I almost wish I didn't have a secret security clearance because the penalties are so harsh for making a mistake. And this was, you know, obviously we had email and we would email things to each other. I remember there being this kind of sense that if you didn't check your email over like eight times to make sure that there was nobody on it who wasn't in the security chain, that, you know, you were just an idiot if you weren't tripled, quadruple checking it. Sometimes just send it to your boss and let your boss send it into distribution so your boss could be responsible for it going out to whoever it went out to. I mean, that's how serious it was. So this announcement that they're not going to prosecute Comey for taking the ultimate in classified information, a conversation that he would have as the head of the FBI and he's talking to the president of the United States, all of their communications at that point would be classified. Any memos from that information, from those conversations, that would also be subject to classified information storage protocols, meaning he shouldn't have been typing the memos on a laptop outside the White House using Wi-Fi. He shouldn't have printed those memos and taken them home. They should have been stored at his workplace. And Above all, he never should have leaked the memos to his friend at Columbia, who then sent them to New York Times, whatever it was. Um, All of that is a prosecutable, they're prosecutable offenses, multiple prosecutable offenses. So here's Senator Lindsey Graham reacting to this news from the DOJ. Yeah, number one, I want to see the report. I like John Solomon. He's a good reporter. But if it's true, the uh, inspector general has referred the FBI director for criminal prosecution. It's true. That's stunning. Okay. We'll know in a few weeks. It's stunning. Now, if Bill Barr decided not to prosecute on disclosing the memos, I accept his judgment. I've known him for 20 years, and I have no desire for him to be like Mueller. I want him to do what he thinks is right by the law and not prosecute anybody if you don't think the case is there because somebody else got mistreated. There's no reason to continue that practice. So if it's true, and we'll know pretty soon, it's stunning beyond stunning so that senator lindsey graham expresses incredulity at the idea that jim comey wouldn't be prosecuted but he does point out a couple of things that i i just so i have to marinate on them i'm going to be honest with you i might have to listen to the clip two or three more times and that is that it may very well be that he violated classified protocols the classified document storage act you know all that good jazz but because of the way that he did it, because he's an intelligent man and, and he worked for the FBI in leadership capacity for decades, he would know how to do it to make it so that he could get away with it, obviously. And perhaps that's what he did. But I, I you can probably hear the disgust in my voice. It just sickens me because airmen that whose names we'll never know, soldiers, sailors, people who we will never know their names have gone to prison for taking pictures inside of uh, you know, inside of a submarine. You know, you take a picture, it's a selfie, you text it to your mom. Your mom doesn't have security clearance, so now you have mishandled classified information because you're inside of, of basically a classified area on a ship. You know, some crew chief in a hangar somewhere standing next to an F-15 takes a picture, and if the, the side panel is down to the top secret area and you can see any part of it, and he texts that picture to his brother and says, you know... You know, whatever smart things the brothers say to each other. I don't know. That guy, he goes to prison. 
James Comey is in, you know, the Redwood Forest looking up at the sky, pondering how how much of an idiot he is. And he's going to get to keep doing that while people who've actually served this country honorably and have made a simple mistake go to prison for their simple mistake where he intentionally took information that he knew was classified and spread it around to get a special prosecutor appointed because he was mad because he got fired. That is not what the founders intended for us when they gave us this Anglo-Saxon form of government and judicial system. And what I want to see is because it can't be that all of them stroll out of this process, witch hunt intact, millions of taxpayer dollars wasted. And not only that, but the the it's like millions of Americans have some form of PTSD from the witch hunt because they believe that the witch hunt is legitimate and In seeing the president walking free, they're losing their minds. Now, I get it. Lindsey Graham says he doesn't want to see the same kind of miscarriage of justice that was perpetrated against the president done against James Comey. But the difference between those two individuals is President Trump was innocent. He did not collude with the Russians, nor did he obstruct justice, where James Comey clearly mishandled classified documents. So he can't just walk away because what happened to the president was wrong. That would be two wrongs. And we all know the slogan, two wrongs don't make a right. So I just get, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too stressed out about it, but I think it, it, it makes a mockery of our justice system and it takes people, good, hardworking people who have actually signed their name and raised their right hand and sworn to protect and support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and all other duties as assigned. That's what you swear to when you when you serve, you know, join the service. And these people, obviously, so if you break the law, and I make no mistake about it, if you break the law, you know, there's there's a process, there's a punishment. Some people are given mercy. Most people have to, you know, they have to abide by the letter of the law, and if not, they they suffer the consequences. I'm not advocating for people to just get away with doing stuff because it's stupid or because, you know, they served or what have you. But I am also not advocating for James Comey to get away with what he did. All it will do is empower and validate those who are embedded in government right now who have things they want to leak, information they want to share, you know, a righteous indignation at the antics of this man who's grossly unqualified to be president. That's how they talk about the president. So it's so funny to see them pontificating on Twitter and social media. Um, so, it, you know, it again, I'm not the kind of person who figures, you know, where we have to have every single person prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But it's clear that James Comey broke the law and he should not be allowed to get away with that. Not for my sake, but for the sake of equal justice under the law, justice being blind, all the concepts that we're so proud of, of our judicial system here in this country. I mean, I guess maybe if I'm not seeing it's because I'm not woke enough. (laughs) I managed a way to squeeze woke into the show. So when we get back, um, we're going to be talking about Gillette. They're a division of Procter and Gamble. They just took a huge write down on their value. I'm going to tell you why and uh, what they can do to right the ship when we get back. Stacy Washington, I'm in for Tony Katz. Hey. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Tony Katz Today. I'm Stacey Washington, filling in for Tony. And it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in. And uh, we, I was, I was mentioning just before the break that Gillette has had a huge, a huge issue. So they just took an $8 billion write down. So the company Gillette, which primarily sells shavers and shaving cream, is now worth $8 billion less than uh, before, before they launched their We Believe campaign. The question had a tagline, is this the best men can get? It was a statement about toxic masculinity and it's cost Gillette and Procter & Gamble such an amazingly stunning amount of money. It's just too much. It's just too much to, to, to even fathom. And I think it's really interesting for them uh, because they brought this on themselves. Gillette has also, um, the, and you, if you remember, think back to the ad itself. Um, the ad kind of insinuated in no uncertain terms that men in particular should be made to feel worthless Reminded that their needs and desires are wrong under every circumstance, that their instincts are loathsome, that their very existence is a malignancy, and that they're responsible for all the world's ills, whether they want to admit it or not, and also that they should still buy Gillette products. In particular, I kind of coined a little phrase. It was uh, they, they kind of demonized the act of barbecuing in the ad. Um, it, that was toxic masculinity. And I said at the time, and I, I still maintain this stance that if you're married to a man who can't barbecue, you, your man has a deficiency. It can be rectified, but your man will need some barbecue training. And if you're dating someone and they can't barbecue, you need to get you a man who can barbecue. Someone who can belly up to the grill and turn out amazing barbecued food. Um, and he does it happily and joyfully, not because he's a man, but because he enjoys the process. Because I like barbecuing too, but my husband is the master at it. And I think it's just something fun to be able to kind of joke around, but to know, hey, if he says, I think we're having barbecue, all of us, our, our eyebrows are up like, what? Awesome. Let's, let's do it. So uh, that's what I'm interested in us, in, in us believing as women that it's okay, not just okay, but it's great for men to enjoy pursuits that are kind of unique to them. Not that women can't do those pursuits, but that men enjoy them and it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's fantastic. And that they're going to uh, enjoy those things without experiencing any ramifications or repercussions. No, no pushback. Men shouldn't have to feel bad for being men. In fact, they should feel awesome about it. Why not? Why not feel awesome and experience everything that being a man really is? Um, I'm all for it. And, and if you're not, I guess the question is why? Um, so I don't know if you saw this earlier in the week. The FBI actually warned that conspiracy theories are a domestic terror threat. And this sounds like some old hold, holdover from Comey stuff. And the domestic terror threat that they're referring to is the Q movement. So you might have seen people typing in the initials of where we go one, we go all. And it's kind of like a little moniker, like it's almost like a little hello, you know, hello. Um, I, I read the Q documents. I read Q tweets and, and blogs and things like that. I see it as being pretty harmless. Um, I, I, I see nothing wrong with people 
basically taking the position that the deep state is a real thing and they want to do something about it. Now, I don't know everything about Q, but they've become more prominent in their display mechanisms. Like uh, one of the images that has gone viral recently is it's a bunch of people at a Trump rally. They're all wearing lots of them are wearing red Make America Great Again hats. Some of them are wearing the shirts and a guy named David Reinert holds up a Q sign and uh, the Q sign is a huge Q but it's painted like a flag. So he holds it up. So Yahoo News actually obtained a document from the FBI Phoenix office warning that conspiracy theory driven domestic extremists have committed several violent acts and should be considered a terrorist threat. Does FBI Phoenix have any documents like that about Antifa? Don't get me started. The document specifically mentions QAnon, a shadowy network that believes in a deep state conspiracy against President Trump. And Pizzagate, the theory that a pedophile ring, including Clinton Associates, was being run out of the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant, a restaurant that didn't actually have a basement. Okay, so um, and again, when we point out the nuances of Antifa, people like Don Lemon and CNN and MSNBC are always screaming about how, well, those are actually fine. Antifa's fine. Any violent elements don't actually represent what anti-fascists really want to get convey, which is they don't want fascism. So they defend them. I'm not necessarily defending QAnon, but I'm saying, really, a terrorist organization? So Antifa, which actually cracks skulls with um, crowbars, sets police cars on fire, billions of dollars of property damage in Berkeley, California, when they were upset over Ann Coulter and and, uh, Ben Shapiro coming to town. They're not terrorist groups, but QAnon is. QAnon just tweets. No violence, just tweeting. So the FBI, here's a quote, uh, assesses these conspiracy theories very wi- very likely will emerge, spread, and evolve in the modern information marketplace, occasionally driving both groups and individual extremists to carry out criminal or violent acts. This is from their document. The document also goes on to say that the FBI believes conspiracy theory-driven extremists are likely to increase during the 2020 presidential election cycle. Okay. I mean, okay. Thank you so much, FBI. But are you saying that it's the people who are holding up the Q sign with the American flag on it? They're the ones that are going to evolve into these violent extremists while Antifa's already violent? It's like, hey, look over here while the violence is going on over there. Don't look over here. Look at the violence and then go do something about it. You're the FBI, for goodness sakes. So the warning is that they're likely to increase, not the terrorist acts will increase. Now, there could be a potential correlation. Let's keep it real. Anytime people get together, there's a possibility that that, you know, mob mentality or groupthink can can play a factor. There could be a correlation between the increasing number of kooks and violent acts that have been committed in the name of one conspiracy or another. But we have not yet seen a Q terroristic act or a Q terroristic threat or any violence that people are like, well, we're beating the stuffing out of you at this protest because we're from Q hasn't happened. So the FBI also said that another factor driving the intensity of this threat is the uncovering of real conspiracies or cover-ups involving illegal, harmful or unconstitutional activities by government officials or leading political figures. The, uh, The document does not specify which leaders 
or which cover-ups it's referring to. Now, they're being cautious, which is their job. Kudos to them for doing their job. No upset there. But hinting of real conspiracies or cover-ups or unconstitutional activities makes it kind of clear that they might be falling for conspiracies of their own. Or could it possibly be that they're aware of some unconstitutional activities and they're afraid of them being uncovered. And so their idea is to kind of tamp down the violence before it has an opportunity to occur. And again, I point right back over to Antifa. You don't have to wait for the violence to occur. It's already occurring. Go get them. Forget about the Q people. If there's some kind of unconstitutional conspiracy that gets uncovered, the Q people will tweet about it and that'll be about it. They'll go to a Donald Trump rally and hold up a sign or hold up a baby with a Q onesie. And that'll be about the the whole of it. I just I'm so shocked that because we we know let's let's have a few statements of fact. We know there are nuts on the left. We know there are nuts on the right. There are also people who are completely politically inactive who are nut jobs, just complete and utter crazies. Are you saying to me, FBI of Phoenix, that out of all the crazy people we have going on, your primary concern is with people who hold up Q signs and put their babies in Q onesies and tweet about Q on Twitter? That's the primary? I'm I'm just having a hard time incorporating this information in light of the facts as they lay with Antifa operating all over the country. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I thought that was a pretty interesting warning that they just, again, you, you, you win some, you lose some, and then, and then there's this. All right. So as we're closing out this segment here, um, I thought it was interesting. New York Post has this story up that this lady, and she's young too. She's, I mean, she's a young woman. She actually looked up obituaries and burglarized people's homes while they were at funerals. She's from the Bronx and she was looking at the obituaries of people who, you know, they're they're listed online. She would go to the homes of the grieving family members while they were out attending the funeral. Her name is Latanya Shalicia Stewart. She's 26 years old and she was arraigned on a slew of charges connected to the break-ins. These were all in the time span of uh, fall of 2017 to the spring of 2018, according to the prosecutors. She knew the people's spouses. So basically she'd say, the spouse is going to be attending the wake or funeral service. And then she would go to their house and steal. And, you know, she then they would come home from the uh, burial service and find their house ransacked by her. She broke windows and glass doors in order to get in. She used a mallet hammer, which they recovered in her car when they arrested her. Um, she was also attempting to break into the home of a person who'd already passed away when cops rolled up and caught her in the act. <laughs> She allegedly had the obituary on her cell phone and her baby in the backseat of the car. So she won't be doing that anymore. Um, And I think that's totally appropriate. All right. We're going to do the break here. And when we get back, we're going to close out the show. I have some fun uh, information for closing out the program and sliding on in. Um, We're going to talk about those robots, the black ones and the white ones. Do people treat black robots worse than they treat white robots? This is CNN. That's what they're reporting on. We'll talk about that when we get back. Hey, 
Hey there, welcome back. <laughs> Stacy Washington filling in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz today. So guess what? Um, we just have a few minutes left in the segment. I, I'm, I had two things for you. First of all, um, New Yorkers have taken out ads in Iowa asking their mayor to come back home. So these are people who live in a high-rise apartment building. It's uh, apparently luxury units and very nice. And they've had a homeless shelter open up right next to their building. And so they feel it's devaluing their property. And they're having to deal with, obviously, you know, homeless people coming in and out, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't feel that they're being properly treated by their mayor. They're also pointing out in their ad, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's brutal, that he's polling at 0%. So what are you doing there? Come back home. I think it's brilliant. Um, it shows what happens when people actually, they're looking at, him. They're looking at what he's doing and they're saying you're running for president instead of being here and taking care of your constituents as mayor. And my advice to them is pretty simple. Voting is transactional. If you're voting for someone and they're not working for you, the next opportunity you get, you vote them out. But don't just be mad about it and plan on voting one way for yourself not just the people in your building. You got to tell all your friends. You got to have some cocktail parties. If your building is posh, invite people over so they can see what you're dealing with and Tell them why you don't want de Blasio anymore and then vote in someone who obviously New York will never have a mayor who's a, you know, died in the wool conservative Midwestern Republican. But how about if that person is just maybe like a normal Democrat, Uh, you know, someone who's fiscally conservative and believes in good governmental management over resources that, you know, are the purview of the government. I mean, come on. Uh, so I, I thought it was pretty smart of them. They're, they're clearly on the war path. And if I were him, he should get back to New York City and start taking care of the problems there. His constituents are owed that much. Um, so I mentioned the whole robot thing. So it's these robots and they're, well, they're, they're not, not all robots are, are like a steel color. So I don't know if you've noticed this, maybe they're in uh, Indiana um, or so, somewhere near you where you've gone to the grocery store, maybe you've encountered, it's a beeping robot. It looks like a cylinder um, and it's on a base that looks almost like a Roomba vacuum cleaner. And so it will, it will ease up to you and it'll beep. And then it will make a sound like a robotic hello, uh, like a babyish robotic hello. So the, this has happened to us at least three times at our grocery store where we've been walking down the aisle trying to get something, you know, looking for something. And I always take one of the kids with me to go grocery shopping. So it'll be me and one of the kids. And we hear this sound and you turn around and there's a robot there. And when it speaks to you, it's expecting you to say something back and then it will just kind of roll away. So it's an inventory robot. It's taking inventory of what's on the shelves. But in addition to that, it's engaging people to, uh, you know, see if people are nice um, people, I guess. I, I don't I don't know. Um, so the CNN actually did a story because all they talk about now is race. All they that is just ridiculous. Study shows human biases extend to robots. Study notes the popularity of white robots. 
So CNN says, have you ever noticed the popularity of white robots? You see them in films like Will Smith's iRobot, Eve from Wall-E. Real life examples include Honda's Asimo, Ubtech's Walker, Boston Dynamics Atlas, and even NASA's Valkyrie robot, all made of shiny white material. Some real-life humanoid robots are modeled after white celebrities, such as Audrey Hepburn and Scarlett Johansson. The reason for these shades of technological white may be be racism, according to new research. A study conducted by the Human Interface Technology Laboratory in New Zealand called Robots and Racism was published by the country's University of Canterbury, suggests that people perceive physically human-like robots to have a race and therefore apply racial stereotypes to white and black robots. These colors have been found to trigger social cues that determine how humans react to and behave towards other people and so apparently also to robots. So the bias against black robots is a result of bias against African Americans, according to lead research uh, official Christoph Bartnick. He was talking to NextWeb and he said, it is amazing to see how people who had no prior interaction with robots show racial bias towards them. So they want to address the issue. Um, He says, according to the study of robots are supposed to function as teachers, friends or carers. It would be a serious problem if all the roles are only ever occupied by robots that are racialized as white. Oh, geez. So he says you should run a Google search about the term robot and you'll see white robots are overrepresented over over overrepresented which is potentially harmful to the perception of other races like i i couldn't care less if all the robots in the world are white that would not change how i live or whether or not i was able to get up in the morning and you know have a couple of eggs it just doesn't matter unbelievable they'll just do anything to keep talking about race all right, y'all. Enjoy. Enjoy your weekend. Unplug a little bit. Get out in the sun. Get out in the, the beautiful outdoors. Breathe some beautiful air. I'm Stacy Washington. It's been a pleasure to be with you today on Tony Katz Today.